Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi, everybody. Hi, Dr. Nick. Yes, hello, everybody. Welcome to Radiotherapy. It's me, Dr. Nick, here again. And, uh, well, this diagnosis is once again slaving away at the medical coalface. I'm lucky enough to be joined here in the studio by the wonderful Prudence Deer and Dr. Sonia Prudence. You first. Morning. What, what's been piquing your interest this week? What's been, oh, a number of things, but um, been f- quite a few articles in, in the news about um, cancer screening and uh, the effectiveness of that. So I kind of did a little bit of digging and uh, we can have a bit of a chat about what's involved and how should we understand whether or not we should be screened. So it's, a, it's a, such an important question, isn't it? Screening mm-hmm. and uh, there's a huge part of our lives as GPs, as Dr yep. Sonia and Dr Chappie will be doing uh, a test. Um, so, OK, it's so... Not, a, not it, as straightforward as everyone might think. I yeah, think really important question. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to hearing that one. And um, what's it, Dr Sonia? Welcome to the show. You've yes, got a special guest you. with you this morning, haven't I you? I do, I do. And, and cancer screening is so important, partially because of the communication that we need to do with patients to understand the role of screening in their lives. So I'm very pleased to have an expert in health communication today. I'm introducing Dr. Chavi Aurora, who's a GP, lecturer and researcher in public health ethics and primary care at Monash University's Department of General Practice. She completed her honours and masters at the Oxford Uhiro Centre for Practical Ethics, focusing on resource allocation ethics and the moral harms of vaccine misinformation. And her current research on Dr. Google and Ooh. health misinformation is what we'll be talking about today. Welcome, Dr. Chevy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I, and I don't know about expert, but <laughs> happy to be here and have a chat. Uh, what I love is that we've got a preponderance of GPs in the studio today, three of us, which is... Ex- I'm feeling a little bit outnumbered, actually. Yeah. That's OK. Someone's got to fly the flag a, a for the mental health workers. A few three to one is just about evening the score, I reckon. Oh. <laughs> uh, and we're very lucky. Dr Chavi's going to join us for the first half as well, and so we'll provide a few comments on the um, questions that uh, Prudence Deer is going to be bringing up for us. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Prudence, why should people be subscribing to Triple R? You should subscribe to Triple R. One, because it just keeps us going. That's our sole revenue, really. Um, and you get a few th- specials, if you're a member. You get a bumper sticker. And that, they're amazing. I'm so glad I've got mine. Um, there's a magazine that you can get, which has got loads of news and information. There are prizes and things throughout the year. And spectacularly, there are live performances. When we musicians and people are kind of touring around, they come in here on a Friday night and do a gig. Um, but you have to be a member to come along and watch them. So... That's a good enough reason. Yeah, I think excellent reasons. And up until the 4th of October, if you subscribe, you'll be in the run-up there. <laughs> running! Try and get my verbs right this morning in the running for one of those spectacular prizes. Uh, now, regular listeners to the show will know that this is one of my favourite parts of the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Oh, yes, the dog park shout-out. Um, I've got one. Actually, Prudence, I'll come to you in a second, but okay. I, just, I just want to mention the wonderful Graham with this. He's got one of these fabulous old grizzly staffies, so Graham in the dog park in Richmond, with the staffie appropriately named Bruiser. <laughs> Bruiser is a very onomatopoeic name for this particular dog. Grey, grizzly, ball of muscle, fabulous, friendly dog, lick you to death rather than do anything more bruising. But anyway, we love Bruiser. <laughs> Who have you got for us? I can just picture that dog. It's <laughs> Bruiser. Beautiful. Um, well, it's not quite a dog park, park, park shout out, but my brother is um, over here from Canada. He's a wonderful dog owner too. Um, my brother's called Tim, and his dog, which is a, a nice little oodle, is, um, is called Toby. And he's had to leave Toby behind in Vancouver while he's visiting us here. Well, I think to- Tim from Canada coming all the way over here just to listen to you on 3 Triple R deserves a dog park shout-out, and I hope uh, Toby is being well looked after wherever Toby might be at this uh, moment. <gasps> oh, we're right, well, enough of the frivolity. It's news time, and um, actually, I think uh, I was going to talk about <laughs> news today um, because I get very excited about vaccinations, and this time we're not talking COVID or flu or anything like that. We are talking about shingles, and um, those of you who are devoted to commercial television might have seen a few adverts for the disease of shingles, so I'm going to turn to our GPs in the room and <laughs> get Dr Chavi and Dr Sonia between them to just explain to our listeners what is shingles. Yeah, great. Shingles is probably most recognised by people as a very painful rash, probably more commonly in older Australians, but can be younger as well. And it's a painful rash that forms these stripes across the body in a blistering, sometimes ulcerating type of presentation. And people probably most know it as causing a lot of pain that can sometimes last even beyond the two to two weeks to maybe yeah 20 days of rash um, but can sometimes the pain and the burning and stinging can last for months and months after that and that's called a post herpetic neuralgia which can be very difficult to treat absolutely right dr chavi how do we get shingles yeah, so it's caused by a previous exposure to the chickenpox virus where you might have been uh, had an infection as a child and um, or earlier in life and basically that, that virus hangs around in our dorsal root ganglia, uh, so part of the nervous system. It's dormant, it doesn't do anything there, but sometimes when we're run down, it pops up as this blistering, horrible rash just to, you know, add... Insult to injury when you're already feeling a bit run down. Um, and, yeah, I've actually had three patients with shingles this week. Yeah, so maybe it's, this post-winter. Yeah, it's such an important point that you don't catch shingles from someone else. It's your own virus that you got when you were a kid. And the interesting thing is pretty much every adult gets the chickenpox virus. Um, not these days um, for young people who've been vaccinated for it, but pretty much anyone over the 25, even if they say, oh, I never had chickenpox, uh, they actually picked it up. It's such a ubiquitous virus. Uh, <laughs> Prudence wave it, waving her head, saying, yeah, that's me. Uh, so even if we don't know that we've had it, nearly all adults have had it, and that virus, as you say, lives on in the spinal cord and can break out of shingles. And interesting, Dr Chavi, you said you've had a couple of cases already this week uh, because the data suggests that if you're once you're over the age of 50, one in three of us will get shingles at some point. So it is that 
common. Why are we going on about shingles? Well, because we've had a vaccine around for some time that the government licensed for 70 to 79-year-olds. It was pretty good. It was the best that we had, but it wasn't great. But there's a new one. Um, now, I don't usually bang on about new products because I'm highly suspicious of them. Uh, but this is one of those rare times when I think a new product does meet good medical practice uh, because this new vaccine um, is actually way, way, way more effective than the currently available one, well over 90% protection against what we're saying is a very common and potentially, as you say, Dr. Sonia, very nasty disease. Uh, the, the vaccine will be going on to the schedule. Woo-hoo. Uh, bad news, boo. Uh, only for people when they turn 70, and there has, isn't a start date yet. Ageist. <laughs> um, so I'm looking forward to that. It won't be too long for me. But um, because it's such a nasty disease, I actually decided to go and pay for this stuff. And, and Very expensive, it. isn't it, when you choose to pay for it? Crucial question with anything new, is it safe? Uh, are there side effects and so on? I say to patients, the main side effect of this new vaccine is on the wallet yeah, because it's just under 300 bucks per dose. Ooh. Uh, and you need two of them. Um, so it, it is expensive. Uh, so it is really only for people who can afford it. You might get a bit of rebate from your private health. Um, but uh, it's one of those new products where when I've looked at the data, which I have in great detail, I actually reckon this one is, is good and it's worth it. In terms of risks, it seems to be, apart from a sore arm, very side effect free and very good at preventing. How long does it last? We don't know. We haven't had it for 30, 40 years, but at this stage, two shots seem to be it for life. So, uh, Dr. Sonia, you're far too young to need it, but the reason I mention it for <laughs> some of our younger listeners is they will have older relatives. Uh, Absolutely. And and it's also um, it's not a live vaccine. It's inactivated compared to the Zostavax, which was previously funded, which was a live vaccine. So we couldn't give that to our immunocompromised patients and they had to pay $240 for each dose of the inactivated vaccine. So wonderful to see this one coming into funding. Yeah, and, and absolutely right. So that's one of its huge advantages. So You'll be urging all your older friends and relatives to guess it, I'm guessing? Absolutely. And um, I, we recommend it actually over the age of uh, 55, even though you still have to pay for it. So that's always tricky, isn't it? Recommending something that has a prohibitive cost to patients, so something everyone has to decide. It's a complicated discussion. We have this with some new vaccines. There's the meningococcal B, of course, for little babies, uh, a rare disease, but really horribly nasty on the occasion that your child gets it. Uh, but each dose is over 150 bucks, and you need three of them. So I think it's a very difficult decision for some people about where the money goes and health. Uh, but for those that can afford it, this is one we would recommend. Um, right, well, I think that's enough of me going on. We'll be back right after this. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, Prudence, uh, tell us what's been going on inside your never-ending ceaseless whirl of a brain. Yeah, well, I love reading the news. So, I mean, there's a lot of important information that, you know, we are constantly sort of inundated with. And I think, you know, 
this is about cancer screening, and there are some very strong and appropriate um, messages around the importance of being screened for certain cancers. We know that screening saves lives. Um, I think we all have a basic understanding that the earlier you diagnose a serious condition, the better the chances are of, um, of cure. And um, so, and, and it's important that screening kind of works because it's a population-based thing. You know, we people we need lots of people to do it, and then we can actually see some really positive benefits. Um, but just interestingly, see so what caught my eye a couple of weeks ago is a headline that said some cancer screening tests may not extend lifespan. Um, study finds. And the other one was saying that um, there was an expert, as um, a, a, a professor over here in Australia at a conference saying that Australian cancer screening tests must be handled very carefully. So, Ooh, so this is, this is sounding... It's messaging, isn't it? Well, it's sounding very controversial. We have to tread a little carefully here, Prudence. You started off by saying there's a general understanding that cancer screening yeah, is what we should so. do, saves lives, and then you read me a headline saying, nah, it doesn't. Well, this is it. Reconcile How do we... Unravel this, yeah. And I, there was a major sort of study, a meta-analysis. So, you know, going trawling through previous clinical trials that matched certain sets of criteria. And this was done by uh, uh, Brett Hauer and a number of colleagues from the University of Oslo just recently. And it's published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So pretty prestigious. And uh, but they looked at the data for mammography. So for breast cancer, colonoscopy and sigmoidoscopies for for colon cancers, Um, the use of CAT scans for... Well, um, I'm going to stop you right there. You said colonoscopy and sigmoidoscopy. Now, many listeners would be familiar with colonoscopy, where the whole bowel is checked, but sigmoidoscopy... Well, I'm obviously not a, a doctor here, but <laughs> it's shorter, I think. It just doesn't go as far, and it doesn't go around all the bendy bits. So, um, so yes, but apparently that's, that is used in certain countries as screening. Thank you. Sorry and to interrupt, keep going. Yep. That's all right. And, uh, and the good old PSA for, for prostate cancer. So they looked at those, interestingly omitting cervical cancer in this. Um, but they went and looked at, like, how long people survive um, and the sort of, if you like, the overall outcome. And they came to a conclusion, having looked at clinical trials that covered over 2 million participants. Wow. 2 million. Yeah, 2 million. So there's quite a few studies. Um, and they um, uh, and they did, you know, these studies involved follow-ups between 10 and 15 years mm-hmm. through the screening sort of process. Obviously, people were found to have cancers. They were treated and they looked at um, at the outcomes. And I think that the interesting bit was that they chose to look at all-cause mortality. Now, I think that's sort of interesting because a lot of studies will look at disease-specific mortality. So if we take something like breast cancer, you might take groups of people, screen some, not screen others, and then see who dies from breast cancer, basically, Mm -hmm. how many. And you will expect the result to be that the screened group, fewer people actually die from their, that, that cancer. That's, I guess, the outcome we're hoping for. Well, that's, that is an outcome we're hoping for, absolutely. Um, but if we look at all-cause mortality, then we might find actually there's not a lot of difference. And that's what these kind of researchers have kind of picked apart. And I guess the important thing is there that, you know, like, well, what's happening? 
That, that's the big question. Yeah, it's, it's, so I want to just pause for a second mm. there because there's something slightly counterintuitive going on. I'm going to turn to our GPs in the room Why here. Not? So if people might die less commonly from a screened cancer, uh, how on earth could you then end up with all-cause mortality being unaffected? Either of you want to answer that one? Well, I guess my understanding is that it could be that the can- the number of deaths that are due to the cancer are such a small proportion of the all cause all causes mm. of mortality that you need a much bigger sample size to see that difference, uh, which is what this this article sort of goes on to discuss. Mm. Um, uh, yes, but I have to admit, when I was reading this article, I did. I was initially very confused as to how yeah. that happened. Well, one, one thing that sort of pops up to me is we're talking about cancer screening, Prudence, and you mentioned colonoscopy and CT scans. And this study was international, was it, or was it in...? Yeah, it covers a, a whole bunch. It was a, it was a meta-analysis. They went and found yeah. as much data as they could from matching sort of populations over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Because so. for me, the, what, 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 what immediately flags for me is a screening test, as we know, is something that's done when you have no symptoms at right. all and done population-wide. And colonoscopy, sigmoidoscopy and CT scans are not routinely used in Australia mm-hmm. for screening population wide for cancers um, with no symptoms, although that right. might be changing for high risk groups in lung mm-hmm. cancer for CT of the lung. But so, so, so that's something that flags for me is um, the nature of screening tests in different countries. Yeah. yeah. And also, I think we need to understand what a screening test can and Absolutely. can't do. And again, you know, um, there is that kind of assumption that, oh, well, screening tests are kind of all good for us. But as you were saying, I mean, you know, people might be in a high risk group, but CT scans carry risks. They're, you know, they're x-rays and, uh, you know, long term sort of or repeated exposures to those sorts of things can be problematic. So I think that's one thing. But also then if you find any abnormality or anomalies in those images, you might go on to do further tests. And if they're in any way, especially invasive tests, then there's the risk that, you know, you are going to injure people as part of the investigation. And I think that kind of plays out to some degree. And that's what this paper was sort of perhaps kind of alluding to, was that there are all these other things that we do. We go and do biopsies. We may go and do surgery on someone with some cancers. You know, until you've actually got the, the, the lump out, you can't actually tell what it was necessarily. Um, so there's, there are a lot of risks around that. But I, I think one of the things I was thinking about this morning was that, um, you know, that, that it's also what, what is the data around death the, the, the what does the death certificate change uh, say somebody who's having a, a treatment for a major cancer will possibly have surgery they might have radiotherapy they might have chemotherapy and i think we all know that that carries risks and it's quite possible that somebody yeah they've had a lot of cancer treatment they've got a compromised immune system they get flu and they die of pneumonia um, that's not going to go down as a cancer-specific death. It's going to go down as just a death. And I think that's probably where some of this is is playing out and sort of almost like skewing the value, the apparent value of the screening. Because unfortunately, those people who we've detected a cancer in, they might, they, probably go, they might have died from it anyway, whether we treated it or not. And so the consequence, most people would take a gamble on having some treatment rather than sitting back and not doing anything. But that said, I think we also know that some cancers can be incredibly slowly developing and would never actually kill the individual. 
And it, how do we choose which ones? I mean, I think that's, that's part of the controversy around PSA, for example. Mm, that's really raising a lot of thoughts for me about PSA, mm. prostate-specific antigen screening, uh, which is a blood test that can be done and is sometimes chosen by male patients to undergo the screening test in the absence of any symptoms, no mm-hmm. symptoms at all, which is a screening test. And the prostate-specific antigen, if it's raised, then requires quite a detailed conversation because we know as men get older the prostate enlarges in a way that's benign and often not related to cancer and the PSA numbers can increase with that size enlargement of a prostate and so um, in my in my GP training a lot of training was around discussing in a very detailed way the risks and benefits of doing a screening test, the risks and benefits of the subsequent Mm. tests that you may choose to do. And these are things like a prostate biopsy that can carry risks of infection, uh, urinary incontinence, pain, erectile dysfunction, very important Mm. side effects. And often I bring up um, a graph showing the number of people needed to screen and the number of people who develop side effects and the number of people who may have a cancer that would never have affected uh, their, their lives going forward. Yeah, it's such a great point, Dr. Sonia, as a man of a certain age. Uh, I have many patients who ask me this question. And just two quick points. One is you're absolutely right. We're asked as doctors to have this detailed conversation about risks and benefits and pros and cons and so on. So many men, after I try and have this conversation, their eyes glaze over. They look at me and say, well, you're the doctor. Should I have it or not? And I think that's a pretty reasonable question. We're asking patients to become instant experts Mm. on a question that is the subject to whole conferences, textbooks and multiple journal articles and so on. And specialist arguments as well. It's a big call. The other point which I think is relevant to this whole debate about screening and data is you've correctly said, Prudence, that these studies are 10, 15 years long. Um, And if we think about prostate cancer screening, for instance, and outcome studies from that, all the data reflect practice that is 10, 15 or 20 years old. Uh, And of course, with prostate cancer now, we have a change in what we're going to do. We we now do MRI Mm. scanning of prostates, avoiding some of the invasive testing, Mm. which may completely change what those outcome data are. And it's really hard to incorporate current practice into studies which have a time lag of literally decades. Anyway, that's Absolutely. just... Absolutely. Yes, and I mean, so, that's it. The whole treatment paradigms have changed. The so, screening uh, paradigms, yeah. So, Prudence, I'm, I'm, I'm alarmed on behalf of the Sunday morning listener with a cup of coffee cooling as they're glued with their ears to the radio thinking, oh, my goodness, uh, all of this screening stuff, whether it's bowel, whether it's prostate, whether it's lung... Mm-hmm. Uh, Is it all a waste of time? Uh, Well, simple answer is no, it's not a waste of time, right? So you can pop your coffee back in the microwave, have a sip and enjoy it. I mean, it was interesting that this study did not cover, first of all, cervical cancer Mm, screening. Now, that has got to be one of the most successful um, you know, forms of screening and, and subsequent outcomes. And, and, and there are particular reasons for that. It's a very simple test, even in the old days of the pap smear, but now we, we test for HPV. But nevertheless... Cervical cancer had a displ- has a dysplasic phase, which you can pick up before it f- turns into a full-blown cancer, and it's treatable at that point. Um, so that, that really fits beautifully, really, and it has a long time frame. You know, it takes a while. It doesn't develop in, into a full-blown cancer in three days. It takes years. So <clears throat> it's the sort of thing that 
really sits well with screening. And so you need to understand, like, what... What sort of diseases can you most appropriately screen for with the right sorts of tests? Um, so, yes, it does work. I think the other ones, I mean, it, yes, you get a, a paper like this which sort of says, well, there's really no life extension benefit for anybody, so why would you bother doing it? The data is really complex. You know, the circum- how we sort of collect this data and how we then subsequently interpret it. Again, I think there's a number of other ways of looking in more detail at it. <clears throat> I don't think there's any doubt that some of those tests, absolutely, the screens will work. But we know that probably others won't necessarily. Um, and it brings to mind that, I mean, yes, another, the ovarian cancer sort of uh, screening test that was run, you know, ca- uh, trial that was run in the UK, which I think was run over in the end 15 years with 260,000 women or whatever. Massive expense. They finally came out at the end saying none of it worked. And that's that's kind of a bold move, I suppose. But how long ago was that, Prince? It's well, they just finished it. Oh, I don't know, four or five years ago. Yeah. They finally concluded it, that the they were trying to use a blood test, the CA one two five blood test, mm. which is a specific mm. blood marker. So you'd think, oh, blood marker for cancer, fantastic, great thing. Let's test for it. Quick, you know, quick, you know, to stab a needle in the vein, um, and also using ultrasound, transvaginal ultrasound. So really, quite non-invasive testing methods. Um, Massive and masses of data, and they came to the conclusion that that was not going to work as a screening test. And I think one of the other things that listeners need to understand is we're talking about a meta-analysis of mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands or millions of yes. people, yeah. uh, and this probably helps guide researchers, epidemiologists, and government departments to look at what they fund, what they fund in terms of investment for future possible trials and so on, doesn't necessarily answer the question for the individual because, of course, this is just lumping together a lot of data and there may be individuals who get a huge amount of benefit from a screening programme more so than someone else. Um, and one of yeah. the, I have this conversation with with older men sometimes because I have maybe a very very healthy man in his eighties, and even though the uh, recommendation is don't screen for PSA for the prostate, well, this guy might have twenty good years left in him, so maybe he's someone who should be. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's the individualisation, Dr. Sonia. Yeah, and and this really um, for me, Dr. Nick, gets at the heart of that uh, GP patient relationship and discussing what's right for you. What's right for you as an individual? I can give you my medical training understanding of population level data, and then we need to decide together, you and I, what test is right for you. And that's really, really important in PSA screening because I'll often say, as your GP, I recommend mammogram screening for breast cancer. I absolutely recommend cervical screening. Uh, sometimes I'll see a a patient who's had PSA every year for 30 years and has never really understood why. And actually that's true for cervical screening as well, but we know cervical screening works really well. Mm. So for me it comes around about... Sometimes I'll bring a man back only to discuss PSA screening in a 15-minute consultation. And I guess that's balancing how we're able to communicate complex information. Shared decision-making is a buzzword that we love to Mm. say, but not every patient wants to share the decision. Some patients Mm. want their doctor to make the decision. And so that's something that we contend with. So as a a conclusion, Prudence, what are we going to recommend to our listeners? I think we continue. You you should participate in screening programs that are offered to you that are appropriate for you 
Uh, but it's usually around age. It's probably one of the most, uh, because that's the predisposing factor to most cancers. Um, they're available. Where, and that are part, if you like, of, for example, here in Australia, our health department's recommendations. So I don't think, for, we don't have a recommended PSA, you know, prostate screening program here. But we do encourage mammography. We do encourage cervical screening as well. And so you should participate in those as relevant. Yeah. And I'm going to mention the faecal lockout blood screening, oh, the yes. bowel cancer screening. I was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead, Dr Chevy. Yeah, and don't forget bowel cancer. So for your 50th yeah. birthday, as a birthday gift, you'll receive in the mail uh, a request by the government to do a poo test, yep. um, which is your faecal occult blood test to to screen every two years for bowel cancer, and that's another test that we know works uh, yeah. in prevention. Well, Dr Norman Swan told us that a month ago. He certainly did, and who wouldn't accept the invitation to send the government some poo? <laughs> uh, so, uh, we did, our fabulous listeners, of course, always on the ball. Um, a text message has come through here from an emergency department uh, registered nurse saying, uh, we said that shingles isn't contagious, so why do we activate precautions and isolation for patients? Which is a great question. We didn't actually say shingles wasn't contagious we said you cannot catch shingles from someone else um uh, dr sonia tell us why we activate um precautions and isolation for patients with shingles yeah great question and thanks very much for sending that in so in the little blisters that form on the shingles rash inside that is fluid that does contain the reactivated chickenpox virus as dr nick said most of us will have been vaccinated or had the chickenpox virus as a child and so we will be immune but there are young babies who haven't yet been vaccinated there are pregnant women who if they contracted chicken pox in pregnancy could be disastrous for their pregnancy and there are immunocompromised people as well all of whom go in and out of the emergency department so if you have shingles you need to cover those uh, little blisters make sure that fluid isn't transferred to any of those vulnerable people a beautiful comprehensive answer to a question without notice thank you dr <laughs> you're listening to a triple r podcast Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Dr. Sonia, just reintroduce Dr. Chavi Aurora and what we're going to be talking about. Yes, I'm very excited. So we've had the benefit of having Dr. Chavi join us for the conversation, but now we're going to move a little bit over more towards her research, which is focused on examining Dr. Google and exploring how older adults access online information about vaccines and how this interacts with their cognitive biases. She's also happily a GP three days a week and she enjoys all aspects of general practice, particularly health communication. Dr. Chavi, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Before we go on, so you've you've not been to the show before and you've just met Prudence Deer and Dr. Nick, but actually it's not the first time you're meeting Dr. Nick, is it, yes, Chavi? Yes, actually. Um, it's a very full circle of events in my GP career where... We thought we'd reserve this for an on, on-air surprise. Yes. Well, 10 years ago, actually, I realised this year I was a fourth-year medical student and did my GP placement with Dr Nick oh. in St Kilda. 
And, and had, how did that go? It was a wonderful experience, <laughs> genuinely. Well, obviously, because I ended up here as a GP. So, um, no, I had oh. the benefit of sitting in with Dr Nick and watching <laughs> his beautiful health communications. <laughs> so I knew your name was familiar <laughs> with my pathetically ageing grey matter. I thought, oh, it just sounds like a familiar name. But, oh, that's gorgeous. Isn't yes. that a lovely coincidence? So Dr Travi told me that that was actually partially why she became a GP. So isn't that wonderful to... to have that coincidence here today. Oh, Chubby, that's gorgeous. Thank you so much. I'd love to hear Thought that. Thought I'd save that for Thank on, on So, Dr Chubby, we know a lot of our patients Google their symptoms online before they see us, don't they? And they often tell me quite sheepishly, uh, oh, I know I'm not supposed to, but I've Googled sore arms and it's told me I might have cancer. And I, I personally, I do find it helpful knowing what's creeping in the back of their mind, what they've found on Google, mm. because I find that if I actually know what's scaring them, I can help to sort of do some myth busting about that if, if I'm aware. Um, but what, based on your research, what do you think about patients doctor googling before they see us in clinic yeah well I think I mean personally as well as a clinician I love it I think it's this really human natural thing to do to say oh I feel vulnerable I feel concerned I'm going to seek information to empower myself and and find why why I might be feeling this way and I think that's really normal um in terms of the challenges of that I think firstly we're operating in this information environment and this information age where sometimes the online environment can influence thoughts in a way or present data in a way that says this is cancer as opposed to the more mundane causes for something like a headache. Um, And there is misinformation out there that's out there to serve, say, political or um, financial agendas rather than promoting health literacy, you know, as, as the outcome. And, of course, there are varying levels of health literacy in the community. So depending on who's searching for the information, they might have different levels of an ability to discern good quality information from something that they can't shouldn't be trusting. So, um, you know, and my interest in this topic really stemmed as a GP registrar working, starting that GP career during the pandemic where we were... We started during the vaccine rollout. Yes, we did. It was a birth by fire. Yes, and and really most clinic appointments, you would half of it would be the presenting complaint, and then half of it would be explaining the vaccine, and often answering questions of a patient who's read something online or seen something uh, and is really concerned about what they've they've seen. So, And a lot of patients came in armed with their own research, as they told me. And I remember learning somewhere that, um, you know, if a patient, if a, if a lay person Googled a health matter and if a medically trained person used Google to find the, safe, the same health matter, um, medically trained people will be more likely to find the right answer. And I think that speaks to our training in uh, assessing sources that are reliable. Mm. Um, but, but we Google things too, don't we? Yeah. I mean, I, I looked up the last thing that I Googled. Um, the first was how to pronounce Oxford Uhero Centre for Practical Ethics. But before that, um, what my most recent Google was lower limb anatomy, because mm. when I'm ordering imaging for a patient, I like to 
to make sure I'm telling the radiologist the anatomically correct part that's hurting. What was the last health thing that you Googled, Dr. Yeah, Chappie? Um, well, the last thing I Googled, every time I pick up my running, I start self-diagnosing with, um, you know, iliotibial band syndrome ah, or, yes. or patellofemoral syndrome. And so I will look on Physiopedia and map out my pain. There were Usually the pain lasts about 24 hours. So it's none of these things. <laughs> self-diagnosing as well as Dr. Googling. Well, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, I mean, the what's interesting, you use a site which you know and yeah. trust. So you mentioned that site. I haven't even heard of it, Physiopedia, but um, I'm guessing that this is not some quackery musculoskeletal site, but some, something you can trust, which yes. must be one of the crucial parts of this discussion. Absolutely, yeah. And I think um, probably of my demographic and a lot of patients that I see, you know, I'm a 31-year-old female, lots of patients my age will look at things about fertility cycles. Absolutely. And that's probably one of the most common things, and I have to admit I've done that too. Mm, yes. Yeah, and something that I, um, I've been noticing with my younger patients, so when we talk about internet information, we're talking about social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, um, do how, how would TikTok is um, just for our listeners who might not be as familiar? Um, I've actually are, you looking, are you looking at me, Doctor? Absolutely not. I was looking straight into the air and, and just crossed by your face. But um, TikTok is—I've never actually used it. But TikTok is where you get sort of a rapid fire of short video clips that uh, users submit, and the algorithm works to maximise uh, videos about a particular topic. So my patients have learnt or seen an enormous amount about hormonal contraception on TikTok and a lot of very negative information about hormonal contraception. And lots of my patients have stopped their contraception mm. based on things they've seen on TikTok. So um, it's a bit uh, difficult for us to combat as GPs, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's yeah, really what my research explores. Uh, I focused on older adults. Um, so we sort of identified that that might be a group that's more vulnerable to misinformation, so adults over 65, uh, I guess for three main reasons. You know, firstly, that um, some studies have shown they're particularly vulnerable to online vaccine misinformation, so more likely to share it or um, to, yeah, just to believe it in the first instance. Secondly, more vulnerable to severe illness and hospitalisation and death from vaccine-preventable illness. And thirdly, only 54.4% of adults over 65 in Australia are up to date with their five-yearly pneumococcal and annual influenza mm. vaccines um, in a recent 2021 study. So um, that's the group that I chose to focus on but absolutely there are so many uh groups out there that can be really vulnerable and topics that come up on and different platforms as well mm. when you mentioned how much time we spent in our consults trying to almost beg patients to believe us about the covid vaccine it was a bit triggering for me because we've had a we've had a decline in that thankfully and i think we're still recovering a little bit as health professionals from the enormous uh, emotionally charged era of covid but i've heard this idea especially out of america that we're living in a post truth Error. I'm not sure if um, Dr. Nick and Prudence dear, you've heard of this this term, a post-truth error. I, I'm not so disconnected from the media that I haven't heard <laughs> of that term. But, but thank you for asking. It, it's actually something which I find of huge concern. I talk to my adult kids about. I, I think, how on earth does anyone make a decision about something? Let's just use the the upcoming referendum here in Australia. Mm. How do you make a decision about something when the information? that you're being given is often just completely inaccurate 
downright mm. deliberately wrong lies. And in this modern world, it seems to be that lies are just followed by more lies. Uh, and when someone's caught out lying, they just carry on. Mm. Uh, I think it makes it extremely difficult for people to know what to do and what to think. What do you reckon, Prince? Well, yeah, look, it's, um, it's kind of weaponising um, information and specific, I suppose, misinformation and disinformation campaigns exist wherever um, to promote ideas that may have no actual basis in truth, but there's a political agenda or a social agenda or whatever. And, yeah, how do you unpick that? And if you do unpick it, how do you convince somebody else that that is not, you know, that's not factually correct? It's it's, it's so convoluted now. I don't know how you navigate your way through, quite honestly. Mm, that really that really brings us, you know, the political agenda, brings us back to the really interesting Oxford-type ethical stuff that uh, Dr. Chavi has been investing into, uh, investigating into. I mean, surely it's, it's morally wrong for there to be so much incorrect information out there leading people astray, right? And who's morally responsible for the spread of health misinformation, uh, Dr. Chavi? Yeah, so... I- I guess, I mean, I wrote my master's thesis on this. And I know. <laughs> it's, a, uh, you know, quite a complex question. I will say on post-truth as well, um, you know, it's it was the Oxford Dictionary 2016 word of the year, you know, oh. and we really saw a spike in its use of that term since uh, the president, 2016 presidential election in the US. But I don't think it's particularly a new phenomenon. I think that um, political propaganda has existed forever, you know, since the dawn of time, but the effect is really exaggerated on the online environment, mm. in the online environment. And so I think to understand who's morally responsible, um, you know, I'd like to sort of map out what that online environment does to information. So um, there's a really neat three characteristics summarised in this paper by um, Philip Lawrence Spreen and his group. Um, so they talk about, firstly, there's this information overload and you have this declining half-life of information where it doesn't hang around long enough for you to really examine is this quality information or not? And to reach an agreed-upon truth in society, we need time to examine an idea. So there's a sort of loss of that online. The second characteristic is that algorithms are curated to maximise user screen time, you know. So um, it's the most attention-grabbing or shock-inducing things that are put at the top of a search. So why, why do I have a headache? Cancer goes up there alongside, you know, or sometimes instead of your more mundane reason for a headache, like a tension headache. And then finally, social media also gives rise to these false consensus sort of effects where um, you're more likely to be in little pockets of social media, whether that's on Reddit or uh, in a closed Facebook group where there are views similar to your own. You know, we talk about echo chambers. But the effect that actually has on thought and opinions is that people end up having more extreme views and they end up – it actually changes the content of the of the information which I think you know so it's not just about that there is misinformation out there that's not based in truth but it's also that it's being manipulated online in a way uh, it's the structure of the environment that affects it so um yeah so I guess in terms of who's morally responsible I think uh it's it's um there are different players of course that that come into come into the picture Uh, The moral harms of it is that it undermines autonomy. You know, it doesn't let us make proper decisions. Uh, 
misinformation itself can be exploitative because if it's if the rules of the game unfairly advantage one group over another, uh, it our attention becomes this economic good and it's effectively being exploited for, for gains. Um, and it can undermine personal and political freedoms, you know, if if we can't function in an effective democracy because the information isn't there, then, um, yeah, that's that's a really significant moral harm. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah that's, uh, this is great, isn't it? And you, earlier on you mentioned sort of cognitive bias, so I'll bring in the sort of, you know, the brain side of things, which... Uh, you know, we often sometimes think that cognitive bias is a bad thing, but actually it's not. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a protective mechanism. We have naturally, you know, we have negative bias because we are always on the lookout for risks and threats to our survival. And, you know, we have ways of processing things because we need to do it quickly, so we shortcut um, how we arrive at conclusions from certain amounts of information. Do you feel that, or do you know, like... So many of these sorts of approaches now, the way that social media functions, is it actually exploiting those sorts of biases in an unethical or immoral way, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Uh, I think so. a lot of the behavioural economics work on the space, in that space, looks at how decision-making is influenced by uh, the, the environment mm-hmm. and that it manipulates your more yeah the negative sides of those biases so I absolutely agree you know these heuristics exist for a reason um it's survival strategy Mm. but things like confirmation bias or uh in out group bias um the backfire effect these are all often exaggerated and propagated by the Mm. the online environment and it it's in a way that increases screen time so it can be Yeah. yeah morally harmful, I think. And you've talked about the moral harms, moral responsibility and that sort of thing, this this kind of ethical concept of what's going on here. I've always understood ethics to be a practical question about what should we do. Um, And so my question to you, which is maybe not a fair one, but uh, (laughs) uh, it's all very well sitting behind a microphone and bleating about, oh, this is awful, these terrible people doing terrible things, but what the hell should we do? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So I guess I'll talk a little bit about my research as well. Yeah, (laughs) I'm just talking, you know, waxing lyrical about the background, which I love to do. So um, my study last year looked at how people over 65 engage with online information and how they make decisions about vaccines and whether there is any interaction with cognitive biases. So there were some really interesting findings um, that, you know, um, the internet was often used to confirm a prior held belief or concern. So, you know, many of the respondents lived through seeing the positive effects of vaccine prevention, such as polio or measles. And so often they were just searching to confirm, yes, that's the case. Uh, So often the internet didn't completely change what what people thought. Um, The other thing was... um, Many people used epistemic cues to determine the credibility of a source. Whoa, 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 whoa. Epistemic, epistemic cues. cues. It, it, it sounds like some things are going to be injected under your skin. Yeah. Won't <laughs> so the idea, epistemic meaning, you know, the nature of knowledge, so looking at, uh, you know, a Facebook post and saying, can I really trust this because it's something on Facebook? Someone's posted this, I don't know. Or this has been posted by someone I trust, uh, so I can trust what, what this says. So... Um, you know, if the source was trying to tell them something, they would trust the information um, provided if they knew who that source was. But if at the end of it they were saying, oh, and now buy my product, 
participants often their trust level went down and they didn't didn't believe that so um you know and another finding uh was participant attitudes towards institutions really affected uh their perceived credibility of the source so one participant said that and i've got a quote here deplatforming and cancelling people makes me more interested in what they have to say and makes their points more persuasive to me it's the modern equivalent of book burning the same participant would search deeply on reddit or youtube for so-called censored information so again it was sort of often what people felt or believed beforehand was how they really defined how they would would search online so what I hope is that finding out a little bit about how people use the online environment and how it interacts with their cognitive biases can help us inform some uh solutions to this problem. This year, my study is looking at how clinicians navigate the online environment and how they discuss it with patients. And hopefully we can put the data analysis is still going, but hopefully we can put all of that together and look at the therapeutic relationship itself and how we best communicate the information in the clinical setting. I think in terms of solutions in general, in society, uh, what's currently happening is censorship and self-censorship by the social media platforms themselves. This is somewhat flawed, I think. It's a little bit reactive. Um, often once the information's already up there, it's it's censored after that and it's there are limitations. You can't censor closed Facebook groups or certain other spaces. There have been these um, behavioural interventions discussed. I don't know if you've heard about pre-bunking at all? No. <laughs> yeah. Oh so there's goodness. this, this idea of obviously many would have heard of debunking. So when you hear something that's not true, then we, after the fact, say, oh, actually, the, let's do another study and prove that that's not the case or, you know, whatever, have, what have you. There's this idea of pre-bunking, which is um, a behavioural economics intervention where you can gamify uh it's, it's using a psychological theory of inoculation where um, you're exposed to weakened forms of misinformation in a game and then you learn to recognise it in the real world. So that's an example of an intervention. It's that almost like teaching, teaching people how to be uh, fluid or fluent in using the internet in a modern age. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. And so there's a game called, uh, I think it's called Fake News. Oh, no, it's called Bad News. And it's a game where you look for uh, fake news examples and, then, and they've used it in kids and found this study found that it improved the recognition of misinformation online and so yeah it's like a information inoculation if you will <laughs> I, love, I love this idea of pre-bunking and particularly if it's for kids because it sounds like getting to the sleepover before your mates yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but actually a game to help people understand uh, uh, inappropriate information that's absolutely brilliant yeah yeah uh, but yeah i think in a clinical setting it's still an open question um one of the findings that's come out is really, it, you know, links to your descriptions, Dr. Sonia, of patients being quite sheepish and reluctant about bringing up their online information use. But all of our interviews with clinicians this year, everyone said pretty much what we did, which is that, oh, I love Just tell to me. hear. <laughs> yeah, I love to hear that you've looked at this online. I want to know what your concerns are. And so, you know, one of my conclusions from that is maybe we're not demonstrating that we're really open to that enough mm. and that um you know encouraging a, a communication where where 
patients believe that they're in a safe space to discuss what they've looked at online will help. So, Dr Chavi, in the last 30 seconds that we've got, <laughs> um, what, what's your advice out there to the listener in terms of managing this space? I think don't be ashamed that you've looked at something online. It's very natural. It's very reasonable and understandable. Don't be afraid to talk to your GP about it as well. If you have questions or concerns, you can bring that information in and discuss it with them and hopefully come to a safe conclusion with what to do. I'd say tell us at the beginning of the appointment. If you're scared about yeah. cancer, tell me in the first minute. After I, don't, don't let me spend 10 minutes telling you that it's not you know, eczema um, and then in the last minute find out that you're worried about cancer. I want to know what you're worried about. And yeah. always get your information from somewhere that's educational like 3RRR. <laughs> Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.